Thank you for refusing to make your care for us an abstraction. And thank you for your coinciding determination to make your affection concrete by placing it in the lives of people that can then broker it to other people. Thank you that Kathy and I have received so very much and that you've given us the good sense to not let it pass our notice. We are thankful. I'm thankful that we get to be part of this church. I'm thankful for the tremendous affection that you have distributed to us through each of these people here. And I'm thankful that we get to be here. And so we're asking now, since we're here, that you would do us this great favor of letting me have words that might be for these precious folks joy and progress in the faith. That would be for a great happy making for all of us if we could know something more about the tremendous wonder of your great care for us, and if we would be infected with it so we could share it with others in a way that changes them and us. We pray these things with an invitation for the Holy Spirit to come. Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Amen. So, here's what could have happened. On April 25th, my last duty as a pastor for the summer, my family and I went to the small group that we've been leading, and here's what could have happened. We could have had people say to us, man, I wish I could get me one of them jobs where you only work one day a week and then you get the whole summer off. How can I get me a job like that? That sounds pretty dang good to me. That could have happened. It might have happened from somebody outside of here. Somebody could have said, I hope you make good use of this time. You better produce, man. When you get back, you better have something to show for all this rest we just gave you. You better rest hard, boy. That's what they could have said. Uh, you could have disguised jealousy or because you have to work all summer when some kind of snarky comment about all you have to do. That's what could have happened. And uh, because I have a, a proclivity to expect short-lived happinesses and a proclivity to barbed wire protect my heart and nervousness, it would be easy for me to imagine these sorts of things coming. I already felt kind of falsely guilty about getting to have all this time off. Nobody else gets that, except you teacher folks, kind of. That was not meant to be an insult. You get, don't you get off in the summer still, teachers, some of you? But, you know, here's what did happen. Way better. We go to our small group. The last official duty on that Wednesday night, the next morning, was going to be the start of the sabbatical. And there was dinner. That was good. There was cake. Better. And they said, hey, Sit down, we have gifts for you. Here's some movie tickets. Wow. I, people have been paying attention. I, 
do like them. People, and but movies also. And then they said, here's some more movie tickets. And I opened up another thing. And there were more movie tickets. Our people do not over-spiritualize. They said, go to movies while you're on sabbatical. And here, here are gift cards so you can eat a lot with your family for free. And they said, how are we... How are we, what are we going to do about your phone? How are we going to destroy your phone? How are we going to curtail the encroachment of emails and texts? How are we going to make sure you rest? People said, in a great reversal of the common thing that I expect, I expect crooked-hearted people like us, humans, to rejoice at others' sorrow, to sorrow at others' rejoicing. And they said to me, I am so excited for you to leave. No, they said, (laughs) but they said, we're so excited for you guys to get this. We're going to miss you. We're so glad, though, that you get this rest. Who does that? Who's excited for other people? Well, you guys. Early on, I sent an email, and one of our elders, Troy here, he just spoke, and he said, strike one. I was trying to give my input. It was needed. I needed to give my input on a very important matter, and he just wrote back, strike one. (laughs) Your input is not welcome here during these months. But that was good. It took about a month before I could finally let down. But you guys exercised a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and care and restraint and generosity in ways unexpected. I thought, man, it would be great and started to pray, Lord, would you help us figure out how how could we leave town some since there are four million people we know here and everywhere we go we will run into them. And people said, hey, will you want to come on vacation with us? Hey, you want to stay at our lake place? Hey, you want to stay at our house? Here are some points for, your, for a hotel. Would you like to go to a Boston Red Sox-Atlanta Braves game at Fenway Park? No, because we hate baseball. <laughs> we had all sorts of kindnesses just plopped inexplicably and undeservedly, but most enjoyably into our laps. And we, we are... We're profoundly grateful. Kathy and the boys and I are thankful for this time you've given us. We're, really, we're glad to be back. And we're... I find it easy since I'm preaching. Kathy is not. She'll be next week. <laughs> but I'm glad to find a text as we talk about our aspirations as a church. So we follow on the coattails of Hutch last week to be able to find something that so closely mimics the situation that I'm in, that I have received your nurturing kindness and restraint and generosity, and I'm here giving thanks for it and realizing, as we talk about nurture, that you already know a lot about it. We visited a lot of churches. You guys are better than every church, okay? That's not humble, but it's true. That's a joke. It's a joke. But I really like you people. 
It's a good church we got here. And God's done some nice things. And He's breathed something really lovely into being. And there's a lot of great churches out there. Jesus does good work everywhere. That was a total joke. But I really, we appreciate you guys. And the Apostle appreciated this church at Philippi. And he wrote this letter that we call a book of the Bible. And it really was a thank you letter. A joy-soaked thank you note where he is able to say, as I can, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He's writing even from his own sabbatical. Roman style. He's in prison. (laughs) But he can't do much. And Walker Percy said men do their best work in exile or in prison, and and he did some mighty fine work here on this thank you note that has been compelling and enticing for many people throughout the ages. But he writes this because this church at Philippi has demonstrated and has adorned the very reality of the Savior and his self-giving love by participating with him in the matter, he says, of giving and receiving. He has been the recipient of their kindness. They have been concerned about him. They've been troubled over his trouble. And so they've sent him money. They've helped him out. They've had people come look after him. And so he's writing. They've got some disagreements, but he's writing to say, nice, thank you. I got your gift. I'm amply supplied. I thank God every time you cross my mind. For the amazing things that I see going on inside of you. And in this letter, in this passage that Scott just read, Professor Jones, to some of you young covenant people, we are given an opportunity to remind you as a congregation, to remind ourselves of something that's really foundational. In a way to re-expose the foundation. You know, at your house... You don't likely think about your foundation much unless something goes wrong with it. In fact, you may try to conceal it. Cover it up in some way, some kind of finish on it, put shrubs in front of it, something. Unless it starts to leak or shift or crack or something, you don't think about your foundation, but it's a stabilizing force for everything else you do. It's very important. And that's what we're trying to do as a church is think about the foundations of who we think we're called to be, what we're shooting for, what we think is central. And... Paul gives us a good description and embodiment in his own life as he deals pastorally with this church at Philippi of foundational things. Primarily, nurture. Last week, Hutch talked about adoring Christ, that we want to be a community that exists for the praise of another. The Father seeks worshipers, and we are to be those. And now, this apostle of the heart set free reminds us again that we're called with a symphony of voices throughout the New Testament and the Old, to be those who are preoccupied with one another, with the growth of one another, with the comfort, with the flourishing of those in our community. And it gives us a way to create an environment where this kind of nurture can happen. Instead of the oxygenation, Instead of the oxygen that we need that makes us to flourish with our breathing, he gives us the ingredients for an environment where nurture can happen. 
And it starts with affection. Listen to what he says. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, how do we become, how do we keep shooting for, how do we keep aspiring to be a church that is characterized by a deep kind of one anothering? If you hang around here long, you'll hear this. And if you go through the scriptures, you'll realize how much the Bible talks about the way we are to be towards one another. Greet one another. Accept one another as the Lord has accepted you. Love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. Offer hospitality to one another. Be devoted to one another. Submit to one another. Encourage one another. Spur one another on to good deeds. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Teach and admonish one another. We didn't make up the phrase. Be preoccupied with each other in the same way that it's native for your own heart to be preoccupied with yourself. It's another way of Jesus saying, love your neighbors yourself. And so, how does it start? Where does it begin? And I think what's really neat is that the apostle embodies this thing and says, I long for you with the affection of Jesus. It's quite important that you actually believe that Jesus has affection for you and for the people around you and for people who do impolite things and for people who don't vote the right way, and people who use their bodies badly, and people who get into debt, and people who cheat, and people who get kicked off of the University of Tennessee football team and ruin their preseason hopes. (laughs) Jesus has affection for people. And for you. And so the first thing you got to do is you got to accept this affection. This has got to be a constant kind of thing that you realize, I've got to accept this. I've got to accept his affection. And see, one of the ways that Paul helps to make this evident is he's always telling these churches that he pastors because Jesus is not into abstract love. He's not into being in love with love. He's not into being somebody who thinks about love as an ethereal notion. He's very concrete about it. And so the apostle can say all these things throughout the New Testament as he's dealing with churches so that Churches get a sense for like what it's like to be loved by Jesus. He says, I'm in the pains of childbirth till Christ be formed in you. He, he demonstrates this great zeal that he has for these. He says to the Corinthian church when he's so nervous that they're about to be hoodwinked and led off the path of following their Savior. Their devotion's about to be muddied and sullied. And he says to them, I have this long list of struggles and temptations. I get beat up a lot. I get shipwrecked. People whip me. And add to that. Add to the starvation and the nakedness and the list of aggravations that you couldn't even imagine. I have my daily anxiety for all the churches. And of course, Paul learned this lesson firsthand with his conversion when Blood was newly on his hands. 
freshly on his hands when Jesus said, why do you persecute me? See, Jesus' life is so bound up in his people that what happens to them is what's happening to him. And so the apostle got that. And so what was happening in the church is what was happening to him. It's the same thing you who are parents know better than anybody else on the planet. In that axiomatic statement that you have heard me say before and you've heard others say before, that you're only as happy as your saddest child. Is that because you don't have boundaries? Is that because you're not emotionally healthy? No! It means you love your kids! And so like if you're, you have a kid who's really struggling and they're in trouble, you're in trouble. You have a kid who's anxious about something that's frightening to them, that's undoing them, you're undone. It doesn't mean you're not healthy. It doesn't mean you don't have boundaries. It means you've got a heart and it's linked up to somebody it's supposed to be linked up to. It's a derivative kind of linking. You feel that way because you're creating the image of the God whose heart is bound up in what happens with His creation. And it's especially bound up in the people that He has purchased. And so... You've got to start thinking about this. You've got to start ruminating on this some. Think about if Jesus is somebody who's fairly abstract to you, or Jesus is somebody who's mainly just looking to inspect you, who's always wearing a frown, who's constantly dismayed at your frivolousness, who's constantly berating you. Well, that's not Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He looked at the rich young ruler whose hands were so full that he could not receive from God. And we're told, and he loved him. And when he saw the crowds, when he walked into the Walmart parking lot and saw the people of Walmart, he saw them and they were helpless and harassed and they looked funny and they were wearing strange things and he had compassion on them. As Dave Hansen said, his guts shook. When he saw the widow whose only son had died in the funeral procession, his heart went out to her. And when he moved into the city of Jerusalem on that last week, when he should have been preoccupied with having the tar beat out of him, when having justice pounded into him in great humiliation, he wept for the city that was soon to continue the extension of their middle finger to him. How long I've longed, he said, to gather you up like a hen with her chicks, but you would not be gathered up. And he wept. He didn't spit on him. He didn't kick him. He wept. In the book of Judges, which is a almost comical except that it's so revealing of us, when in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, there's this cycle of people getting oppressed, God's people, because they have forgotten God, and other nations come and rule them badly. And then they cry out to Him. And there's this one place where it said, when God could bear their misery no more. When God could bear their misery no more? The people of the extended middle finger, the people who are spitting at him, the people who don't give him the time of day, and he cannot bear their misery anymore. Do you think of God like that? 
You ought to. Or you ought to. Because that's the kind of God that He is. And of course, you're not going to ever be able to fully love anybody or give yourself to anybody or not be so self-protective unless you trust Him. And you're not going to trust Him unless you think it's safe to trust Him. Unless you think it's good to trust Him. Unless you think His love is something you can rely on. And John says, so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. It's something trustworthy and dependable and durable and reliable and you're supposed to, we're supposed to count on it. So here's the, here's an application for you. Here's something you can try. Let's assume that some of you read the Bible from time to time. I think that is a large assumption. I don't mean that to be critical. I assume most people do not read the Bible. You don't have to raise your hand in either category if you do or do not. Some of you don't read the Bible because you don't think God's very good. It's, it's hard to understand. Hang out in the neighborhood of the Scriptures in those places where when you read them, when you see something, you see some way that Jesus is with somebody, or you see some way that God is hearing the groans of someone and He is concerned about them, you eavesdrop on some phrase, on some sentiment, on some characteristic of God that makes you think, oh my, if that were true, that would be pretty flippin' awesome. If God really felt that way about people, if He was really that attentive, if He really loved me that much, if grace was really that true, I might could be different. Life might could be different. I promise you there are places in the Bible like that. They're, they're not everywhere, but they actually grow on you as you believe this stuff. Go to the places where you find that happening and ignore the other ones for a time. And now, you'll have a severe voice inside you, a severe strict disciplinary and Presbyterian voices telling you you're not being sincere and you're not being authentic and you gotta hold the whole you gotta have the whole counsel of God and all that. But you're submitting to the authority of the church here. We're telling you, I'm telling you, do this. Do this. Because you got you gotta get it in your guts that his love is better than life. You don't think so, you can't do anything. Your whole life's about self protection, self promotion, self preservation. You can't love anybody. We can't be a nurturing community. If everything is about you all the time. The good news of others is a slight on you. If the success of others is a diminishing of you. If you can't give away your money, your time, your home, your heart. You can't give it away because who's going to look after you? We can't be a nurturing community. But we have a Savior with large heart. Big arms. Who wants you to rely on Him. So accept His affection. And then, do this. This is what Paul says. Ask. Ask to be a channel of that very affection that you've accepted. I don't normally do alliteration. I always feel like a fruitcake doing it. It just presented itself today. So accept affection. Ask to be a channel of that affection. Okay. Just be lucky that there's even an outline. So, and this is what Paul says. This is what Paul says. I haven't done this in a few months. I've been just preaching my family. I get the hankering and I just say, okay, guys, let's have a pretend sermon. They love it. <laughs> we don't really do that. <laughs> Praise the Lord, my children say. Okay, so here's what Paul says. Ask. Ask to channel the affection. And this is my prayer. See, he's longing with the affection of Jesus. It's in him. 
And he's got it for God's people. Which is a sign of life, you know. It's a sign of being converted. That's what the Apostle John says. You know you've passed over from death into life if you love the brothers. That's part of how you know. Is you want good for other people. You find yourself inexplicably being troubled by the troubles of others. You find yourself moved towards other people. And Paul says this, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So you may be able to discern what is best. You need to ask Jesus frequently, persistently, often, to channel his affection wisely and liberally through you. Now, here's why this is important. And this is going to be a little lesson to you. There is an expression that most of you use often in your work that goes like this. Lex orendi, lex credendi. Do you guys use this all the time? Like we do? This sounds like it's something from Harry Potter, right? It's Latin. Thomas knows what I'm saying. Thomas Hayes, you're here, Latin master. And Scott probably does too, because he knows 100 languages. But the idea is, lex orendi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of believing. In other words... Let's put it this way for your practical life. You can tell a whole lot about what you believe about God by how you talk to Him in private. Or you can tell a whole lot about anybody else in here, anybody's actual, living, walking around shoes faith in Jesus by how they pray in private. So, it doesn't matter what you say you believe. When you're talking to God, you get a good indication of what you actually believe. Because in prayer, that's where your heart gets engaged. That's where you're pouring out yourself. That's where you're offering yourself up to this unseen one. Right? It's where, like, if you're doing it right, you feel like a crazy person sometimes. It's true. But if you're somebody, for instance, you find yourself not praying, why would I do that? Well, it's just because you don't... One, you may not feel worthy. You know, you may not think that God would actually listen to you, if He knows He's got the skinny on you, He's got dirt on you, and you feel dirty, and you think, gosh, I've got to clean up my act before I come to Him. Well, that's a lie. You've been tricked. You've got to come to Him to clean up your act. But if you stay away from Him, you probably don't think He's very good. If you find yourself praying to Him in a very polite and formal way, and just asking for his generalized blessing on the world, that means you probably think of him as a generalized God who doesn't do much. But if you find yourself sometimes in desperation shouting or earnestly wrestling or raising your voice or finding yourself running out of time to pray because there's so much that you need him to do, then you probably actually think he's good and involved and he might do stuff. He might actually like you. He might actually like to hear from you. And Paul is all the time, just like the rest of the scriptures, showing us prayers. And so right after he prays that the Philippians will get an A on the test and their business will make a lot of money and that their complexion will clear up and they'll have a svelte body and executive styled hair, he says... He says, let the love that made the world, the love that's better than life, the love that moves towards enemies, the love that is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked, the love 
that can bear the misery of people who give him not the time of day anymore. Let that love reside and multiply and flourish in these people's lives, in your lives. Oh, you got to ask. And see, asking, you know what will happen? Everything you start to pray about earnestly, consistently, expectantly, you start to look out for. And part of praying so that you'll have knowledge and discernment of what is best is this is, is what helps you stay in the path of following Jesus because every single person in here gets confused, including me. It will be no time before you start thinking that the most important thing in your life is your kid's success. And the most important thing in your life is making sure you've got a fully funded IRA. The most important thing in your life is getting the Donald Gone car fixed. The most important thing in your life is that you've got to succeed. You've got to get into graduate school. You've got to get a wife. You've got to get a husband. You've got to get rid of your present wife or husband. Something. But when you start to say, I'm going to adopt this sentiment. Jesus said... It's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How do you show much fruit? How does the world know that we belong to Jesus, that we've been inhabited by this love that causes reversal? By the way, we love each other. Man. I think that's why people find elections, I I shouldn't speak generally, I find election season so horribly off-putting because there is such an abhorrent Lack of love. Some version of Christianity among both candidates right now, and none of them demonstrate even an inkling of love toward one another. Can you have an opponent and still love them? God has many. Oh, we show that we belong to this Savior who comes after his enemies, who seeks and saves what's lost, who puts us on his shoulders and home rejoicing gladly. He brings us we got to ask that Savior, put your heart in us. Let our love abound. Because how else? And maybe you're, well, you probably are, you're way better than I am, I'm sure. But do you, do you realize how hard it is to love people? Have you tried? Have you tried to be patient and kind and not rejoicing and things going wrong and being steadfast and being actually happy for others and just thinking about what's good for somebody else and not for yourself? It's terrible. In our native heart disposition. But when Jesus starts getting a hold, inexplicable things happen. You start to think, oh my goodness. I'm really worried about them. I would love it. I would love it if our elders and our deacons here would make it their daily prayer that their love would abound more and more for all the people in this church and for this community so that there are some nights you find yourself unable to sleep because Ward and June are having marriage problems. And that is a Leave it to Beaver reference because I don't think we have any Ward and Junes here. But I would love it if there are people that you found yourself so bound up with you found your gut shaking and compassion because you cared about them so much. And I know it happens. It happens all over this congregation. I see it all the time. But if that was your normal way of being, you think that wouldn't affect you as a businessman if you thought, Lord, how do I love my customers? How do I love my employees? How do I love the people that I serve? Not just try to take advantage of them. Not just try to get something from them. How do I love them? How do I love my roommate? How do I love my kids? How do I love my parents? How do I love my next door neighbor? Jesus. 
Give me your affection for them. You've got to accept affection. You've got to ask to channel that affection. And last, I bet it's an A, act. You've got to act with the one whose affection it is. Scott read, and you'll have it in your bulletin, you have it in your Bible, the passage from Leviticus, so I'm not going to go through all of it, but I wanted you to see it because every time you see a listing of the law, when God is giving His covenant community all these laws about how you're to conduct your economic life, how you're to care for, the mis- for those who have less fortune than you, who are poor economically, for those who are disenfranchised, how you're to care about older people. You know what all of those things are? They're just saying, here is the wardrobe of love. When love gets dressed up and it goes to work, this is what it looks like. When love deals with elderly people, this is what it looks like. When love deals with somebody who's driving you crazy, this is what it looks like. That's all that God's law is. It's summed up with love people. Don't put a stumbling block in their way. Do to them like you want them to do to you. And so, if you want to think about it, you realize there is an application everywhere you go at any point of any day for you to have Jesus loving people through you. Now, the biggest danger when you hear a thing like this is that you'll think that there's a particular order because I've just given an order. I've said accept affection, then ask to channel, and then act. Well, it doesn't work like that. Some of you think it works like that, so what you'll do is you'll sit in your room and you'll say, Lord, help me to feel your affection. You'll try to feel loving. And some of you might, if you have some wine, it'll probably help. But you may not feel loving. You might. I hope you do. But don't wait till you, till you feel loving. And, and, and some of you will think, I don't know for sure if God loves me. I'm not, well, none of you know for sure. They're always struggling with that. Every single person in here wonders about that from time to time. Look at yourselves. Why would he? That's what faith is. We're constantly battling to believe the unbelievable. He's fond of us. Why? We don't know. Because he's good. Because that's who he is. He's taking care of all that was against us. Okay. So what you got to do sometimes, you got to say, this is central to Jesus. I'm praying that this will happen now. Jesus, broker your life for me as I do it. There's so much about the spiritual life. You can't hoard spiritually. You know, like the Israelites in the desert, the manna, it came each day. If they kept it, it soured on them. You can't store up love. You can't store up faith. You can't store up anything without it going bad on you. Check out your garage. But you know what you can do? You can expect the God who's always in the present the God who never stops to love, you can expect Him to broker His life, to, to hand it over, to channel His life through you and whom He lives to other people. The power comes in the doing. The love comes as you love. That's why John can say, so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. God's love is made complete in us as we love one another. As we love one another. You've heard me say before, and I've been so amazed and so happy to experience it. Sometimes I have believed God's love more fully, more transformatively, more exuberantly as I'm trying to help somebody else believe what I have believe. It's in the act of loving them. It's in the act of offering forgiveness, in the act of saying I'm sorry, in the act of doing something for someone that I expect, and I want you to expect, 
Jesus to be alive in you, making your love abound more and more. I want to close with a story about Uncle Peach. You might know Uncle Peach. Uncle Peach, when he worked, which was far from all the time, he was pretty good at working, but you see, money made him thirsty. He worked best when he had no money. As soon as he got a little money in his pocket, he needed to quench his thirst. And then his interest in work, it left because he liked liquor. And he was never married. He was never married for the reason, according to him, that he could never accomplish a short courtship. No woman who came to know him well enough to make up her mind about him would ever make it up in his favor. So he had a problem. See, Uncle Peach liked the bottle. It was a colossal disappointment to himself and to everybody else. Except for his sister, Dory. And this was said about Dory in a story called Thicker Than Liquor by Wendell Berry. Dory had these sentiments about her brother, Uncle Peach. It said this, Uncle Peach was her trial because she let him be, because she loved him, and she would not give him up. See, Dory thought often as she dealt with all the colossal heartbreak and disappointment of Uncle Peach in her life, Uncle Peach, whose mama died when he was born, that when Jesus said, whatever you do, the least of these you do to me, must surely at least be talking about my own care for my own drunkard brother. And it says this about her, quietly, almost submissively, she propped herself up against him because in her fate and in her faith, she was opposed to his ruin. She was opposed to his ruin. She loved him and she would not give him up. He was her trial because she let him be. In the fiber of her being, she was opposed to his ruin. What if somebody had made you and all your Uncle Peachness? Because I guarantee you there are people in here, every single soul in here. You have these moments you think, if I am fully and finally inspected, God must be shaking His head. I can't believe you can't get it straight. That's how petty you are. That's how flimsy your faith is. What if somebody had made you their trial? And said, I love him. I won't give him up. I love her. I won't give her up. I love them. I won't give them up. I am opposed to their ruin. And of course you know this is what we get together for each week. This is why you've been given to each other that you might rehearse the story that we have a Savior who has said emphatically, I am opposed to their ruin, so ruin me. Let them be my trial. Let my heart be broken for them. Let my life be tied up in them so that they will not be ruined. That's the secret of rehearsing and reenacting that story over and over and over again in our homes and in our businesses and in our church life and in our community to say we are the people who belong to the Savior who is opposed to the ruination of the world. We will let others be our trial because our Savior has... Let us be His.
He will not give us up. We will not give each other up. So we'll rehearse and remind each other of his affection and we'll accept it. And we won't be so arrogant or foolish as to think more lowly of ourselves than he does. Don't think that you're the one exception to his love. You're not. He even loves you in your pride. And we'll ask him, channel that affection through us, and then we'll act expecting the God who has made the world his trial. To love the world through us. To love one another through us. So that we can be the theater upon which he displays a love that's better than life. Honestly.